Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was once, or I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Amen. In 1779, John Newton penned maybe the most famous hymns in all of history. Amazing grace. This this song is sung in churches across this world. It's a song that's sung Uh, frequently at funerals. It's a song that is sung when we often are going through tough times, when we often don't feel the love of God or feel God's presence or, or when we just want to feel good. We come back to this truth, this song, this hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. But why does this song, why does this hymn bring to us much comfort? Why is this hymn so popular? The reason is because it spotlights one of the deepest truths in all of Christianity, the doctrine of the grace of God. God's grace is what wakes us up in the morning. You can also say mercy too. God's grace is what provides us with jobs and money and food. God's grace is what causes us not to get into accidents when we are on the freeway. You know, when you don't, or when you don't get a ticket, when you're speeding fast and you just go right past that uh, CHP, what's the first thing you say? Oh, thank you, God, for your grace. So grace, God's grace, is interwoven into our everyday lives, is it not? However, if we think that all that that is if we think that all that grace is are those just those minute uh, details in life, waking up, food, things like that, job, money, then we have such a low view of what grace really is. We can't limit nor view God's grace in light of our everyday lives. For if we do, we are missing the primary focus of God's grace. When we think about the doctrine of the grace of God, we first and foremost must view God's grace in light of not your job, not your money, not food, but salvation. Salvation. We must view God's grace in light of the cross. We must view God's grace in light of redemption and resurrection and justification and adoption and sanctification. Saints, when we think about the grace of God, we must view it in light of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said, grace signifies that favor with God, with which God uh, receives us, forgiving our sins and justifying us freely through Christ. Grace is freely given to the most undeserving and unworthy, and it is not obtained by any strenuous efforts 
endeavors, or works. And that's what grace is, friends. If we want a definition of grace, grace is the unmerited favor of God that he extends to his elect by sending his son to live, die, and rise on their behalf. I love Abraham Booth's uh, definition of grace, of God's grace. He says, it is the eternal and absolute free favor of God manifested in the vouchsafement of spiritual and eternal blessings to the guilty and unworthy. Notice how Abraham Booth didn't mention anything about money, anything about temporal things, but he, he's focusing on grace and how, it, and how we are to view grace in light of eternal blessings and spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Grace is eternal, meaning that it had no beginning. It's absolute, which means it cannot be overturned. It's free. It cannot be demanded. This grace that is given to the guilty and the worthy, this grace is given to, to men like me and you who are guilty, unworthy of such grace. This is far unlike the way we shower and pour out our grace. We pour out our grace on people who do deserve things. We pour out our grace on people who have done things for us. Or we pour out our grace on people who we see are doing great things. So our grace is not like God's. And just like with the doctrine of God's love, what I want to do tonight is I want to show you how, how the, I want to show you the distance that exists between the way we show our grace and the way we and the way we pour out our grace and the way God shows his grace, the way God exemplifies his grace. So this evening, I want to I want us to consider the doctrine of the grace of God and the way we'll view the doctrine of God's grace is not by looking through various scriptures and saying there's grace here, there's grace here, there's grace here. And then we build a doctrine of the grace of God. My, we have to view God's grace in light of Jesus Christ. We have to view God's grace in light of salvation and what Christ has done on our behalf. So if you don't know the gospel this evening, you are in a good place because this is saturated with gospel. So let's stand and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And you know, and, and hopefully you're already there. Ephesians chapter 1, and for the sake of um, understanding the context, our verses will be 7 and 8, but I want to read from verse 3 to verse 8. So follow along with me. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now for our verses this evening. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us 
in all wisdom and insight. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. I want to draw your attention to three truths, to three things this evening that will help us build a doctrine of God's grace. And we'll see these three truths in verse 7 and 8. First, I want you to see, and this is, you can say, point one, I want you to see God's costly grace. God's costly grace. Next, I want you to see his forgiving grace. His forgiving grace. And then third, I want you to see God's rich and free grace. Okay? So, God's costly grace, God's forgiving grace, and his rich and free grace. And in doing so, I hope that you will be encouraged, you will be challenged, and you will adore and love your Savior evermore. So let's first look at God's costly grace. God's costly grace. Look at verse 7 again, if you will. In him, we have redemption through his blood. In him, we have redemption through his his blood. Saints, God's grace is costly. God's grace is costly. Now you might ask, how so? How is God's grace costly? And how does this one verse highlight God's costly grace? So let's examine two aspects of God's costly grace that are seen in this verse. Two aspects. First, let's see what we obtain from this costly grace, what we obtain from this costly grace. Paul tells us in him, in Christ, we have redemption in him. We have redemption. Now, at the end of this, you will say amen to that. And when you read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, I hopefully you will have a greater insight and a, and a greater uh, appreciation to this word and for this word, redemption. Because as Pastor Antonio said on Sunday, there is nothing in the Bible that's written out of the ordinary. There's nothing in the Bible that is written that doesn't connect to what previous things have been said already in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that's foreign. There's nothing in the Bible that's random. But every word in the Bible is placed for a specific reason. So in him we have redemption. Now, the concept of redemption didn't begin in Ephesians chapter 1. Okay? The concept of redemption did not begin in Ephesians chapter 1. In fact, I heard Pastor Antonio tell me uh, a while ago that As soon as God said, let there be light, redemption began. That redemption began not in the New Testament. Redemption didn't begin in the incarnation of Christ. But redemption began a long, long, long time ago. And this central theme is written all throughout Scripture. But let's first ask, What is redemption? What is redemption? What does this word redemption mean? The idea of redemption was a common one in the ancient world. 
In the Roman Empire, during the time of Paul, there was, uh, there was as many as six million slaves. In fact, the buying and selling of those slaves was a very huge business. When a family member or a friend seek to release a slave that they cared about, the individual would purchase the slave for himself and then grant that slave his or her freedom. The one releasing the slave would give the released slave a certificate saying that this slave has been released and has been redeemed from their slavery. That document was proof that that former slave was free. A piece of paper that said free, or whatever it said on there, redeemed, ransomed, whatever, was what granted freedom to slaves. In order for a slave to be released, then a, hear this, redemption price had to be paid. A redemption price had to be paid in order for this slave to receive this certificate. Here, Paul is picking up on that idea. And that's why I said there's nothing in this Bible that's random. Paul knows when he's writing this that the Ephesians know something about slavery. He's picking up on this idea and he's connecting the slavery and redemption that was commonly seen and experienced during that time to the slavery that we have in Adam and the redemption that we have in Christ. He's making a connection between the two. Again, Paul says, we have redemption, which means that those who are saved have been released from their slavery. Those, you, if you are united to Christ by faith, by his spirit, you have been released from your slavery. Friends, we were born slaves in this world. Since the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden, no one is born free. But what exactly are we slaves to? Sin. We are slaves to our sin. We are slaves to our sin. We love our sin. Paul says in Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves... Of sin. No one is born free from sin. Everyone that comes into this world is born with a nature that is defiled and corrupt and evil and completely separated from holy God. We were slaves to our sins, saints. But unlike slaves, and hear this, unlike slaves who long for freedom, and if you ever watch the movie that shows slaves in there, or even watch the movie that shows uh, inmates in their cell, they long for freedom, do they not? They dream for freedom. They count, they, they're counting down the days when they are free. They're thinking about all the things that they're going to do when they are free. Unlike the things that we see in movies. Those who dream about freedom, those who, those who long for escape and freedom, we loved being a slave. Did we not? We loved being a slave. We loved our sin. We did not desire true freedom. And I'm connecting here, freedom in Christ. We did not desire true freedom that's found in Jesus Christ. 
I mean, think about it. Even when someone would offer to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, what would you do? That sounds nice. I've heard that before. You might have rolled your eyes. It might have just been something that just went in one ear and out the other. Freedom has been offered to you. And daily did you reject it. Every single day you rejected the freedom that you have in Christ. That is why the wind had to blow over our dry bones. That is why God drew his spirit, drew us by his spirit, because we wouldn't have been drawn without the spirit. Saints, we wouldn't have freed ourselves. In fact, if we had the key to our cell, if we had the key to our, 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 our chains and our locks, we wouldn't have unlocked ourselves. We would have stayed in our rebellion. We would have stayed in our sin. That is why someone had to come and free us, not just from our sin, but from ourselves. Jesus Christ, in his life, obeyed God's moral law perfectly in order to release us from under the condemnation of the law. The law, when you were in Adam, was not your best friend. But daily, it whipped you. Daily, it showed you that you are a sinner. But also, it showed you the one who has completed the law on your behalf. Christ in his death carried the weight of every sinner who would ever believe. And he took our sin and he nailed it to a cross. And by doing so, he redeemed us from our slavery. Paul says it so gloriously in Romans chapter 17 and 8, or chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God. That though you were once slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were committed. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You went from one slavery to another. But this slavery is not like this one. Where in this slavery, the law is your taskmaster. The law beats you down. The law only reminds you of your sin. In this slavery, in Christ, in his righteousness, the law is your best friend. The law shows you what you must do in order to please God. Not to earn salvation. Not to earn salvation, but to help you in your sanctification. To help you in your everyday lives. He says in Galatians, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, So also, when we were children, you were enslaved under that basic principle of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and hear this, to redeem, to purchase, to ransom those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. When you were a slave in Adam, you could not call God your father. But when you place your faith in Christ, he puts you into his kingdom of light. And now you have the privilege, you have the honor to be adopted as son 
and to call God your father. And he doesn't leave you as a single child, but he brings you around other believers. Glory be to God for his grace. Glory be to God for what he has done in his son. Saints, what do we obtain from this costly grace? Redemption. Redemption. Not redemption in the form of a piece of paper, but redemption in the form of a mediator. Redemption in the form of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Redemption is a gift. A gift that God gives to us based on nothing that we have to offer in return. What did you offer to God in exchange for redemption? How much money did you offer to God in exchange for freedom? Nothing. Yet while redemption is a gift to us, redemption is not free whatsoever. But it costs God more than you can ever imagine. Which leads to what is, what is the, the, the next aspect of God's costly grace is it costs God his son. Again, look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Did you guys catch it? In him... We have redemption through his blood. What did this grace cost saints? What did it cost the Father? Christ. It cost God his only begotten Son. It cost the Father the Son of the perfect spotless Lamb. The redemption that we have been given in Christ is free for the taking. Anyone who will believe can be saved without cost. Yet while the redemption that the Lord gives to his people is free, it is anything but cheap. It is far from cheap. Saints, the hour Christ came to you and you believed in him, you did not bring a payment in your hand. You do not bring a, a list of good deeds in your hand. All that you needed was faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. When you believed on him by faith, you were saved by grace. And it did not cost you a single dime, not a single penny. However, it cost the Lord everything. The price of your redemption was his precious blood. When Jesus died on the cross, the innocent was dying for the guilty. He who had no sin was dying for those who only had sin. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he satisfied all the just and righteous demands of Almighty God. It cost God his son for you to be redeemed. The richness of the blood of Christ is what turns our sins from scarlet to as white as snow. It costs you nothing, saints, to believe in Christ, but it costs Christ's humiliation. It costs Christ's sacrifice. It costs Christ's betrayal. It costs Jesus Christ his life. Saints, the grace that God gives to us is indeed costly. It is a costly grace and hear this, that displays a costly love. C.A. Spurgeon says this so provocatively. And pay attention and don't use this unless you explain it. But he says, when you look at 
the cross. And you consider Christ on the cross. How could you not think? How, could, how can the question not come to you? And the question is this. Does God love me more than he loves his son? Now, careful how you answer that. But you see where he's getting at. It costs God the most precious, valuable being that he ever treasured. That one that was always in perfect communion with him. It cost him that son in order to redeem this one so he can be called a son. That's something to ponder. But here's an answer. God doesn't love you less than Christ because you are in Christ. So he loves you the same. What a gracious gift that the Father has given to us in Christ by saving us, redeeming us, ransoming us, paying our debt, redeeming us out of the slave market of sin. No certificate needed. When Christ saved us, when he came down from his heavenly throne, he did not offer to the Father gold and silver. He offered himself. He offered his life. And then when he came back to heaven, he offered himself and said, was I not worthy? Am am I not worth it all? And the Father said, yes. Yes, you were, and what you have done is what was required. And what does he do? What does the father do? He vindicates the son by rising him from the dead. It costs Christ everything. It costs you nothing. Saints marvel at this costly grace of God. Marvel at it. Don't take advantage of it. This is a gift that God gives only to a few people. Not everyone in this world receives this type of grace. It's only for those whom he has eternally loved and eternally has been given grace in eternity past, uh, in time, in his son, and even now through his spirit. Treasure it. Sing of it. Let it motivate you to obey God's law. So now let's look at God's forgiving grace. God's forgiving grace. Not only is God's grace costly, but it is a forgiving grace. In him, we have redemption through his blood. And here it is right here. The forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Not only is God's grace costly, but it is forgiving But you might ask, and this is the number one question that you should ask when you are evangelizing. How can God forgive a people who have rebelled and sinned against him? How can God forgive a people who have rebelled and sinned against him? This is actually the question that I asked myself before Christ saved me. How can God forgive a multitude of sins? Saints, when we sinned against God in Adam, it wasn't as if that sin was counted against us for one year. 
It wasn't as if that sin was counted against us for two years or ten years. You know, when someone does something to you, you count that penalty against them for maybe a month, two months, three months. You're maybe mad at them for a year, two years, right? When we sinned against holy God, what was counted to us was an eternal sin. That sin that was counted against us was for all eternity. One sin, one sin against holy God demanded us to spend an infinity in hell. One sin demanded us to spend an infinity in hell. So how can we ever be forgiven? I mean, we don't have an infinite amount of money. How can we pay God back? How can we how can we um, receive forgiveness and grace from God? In the Old Testament, it was prefigured. People would bring sacrifices to the temple, and 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 the sacrifices that were being offered were to cover the sins of the people. Yet. All of that blood that was shed, all of that death, did not take away one sin. It was incapable of taking away sin. It was incapable of complete forgiveness. In fact, all that it did was cover. As if, think about it, think of it this way. If you had a cut and you just put a Band-Aid over the womb, the Band-Aid doesn't completely wash away and heal the womb it just covers the womb the sacrifices of blood of the of the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and and all of these doves they only covered sin but there is a deep and rich and and a significant redemptive historical view and and way that we are to view the sacrificial system that all these Israelites brought these sacrifices to the temple because those sacrifices prefigured and typified or pointed to the one that would come and redeem his people and offer himself as a spotless lamb and not just cover the sins of his people, but he would remove the sins of his people. Those sacrifices prefigured in types and shadows the perfect sacrifice that wouldn't come down the hill, that wouldn't come from someone stable, but would come down from heaven and take away the sins of his people, not for a season, not for one year, not for two years, not for ten years, but forever. When Jesus Christ shed his blood, shed his perfect blood on the cross, he did what all of the blood of the animals could never do. When he shed his blood, he was shedding the blood of a perfect man, of a perfect sacrifice. His blood was the blood of a man who was free from sin. His blood was the blood of That was the only blood that could pay the debt that Adam owed, or that we owed in Adam. When Jesus shed his blood, he forever, forever settled the sin problem for all those who would believe in him. What does that mean, saints? 
Christ didn't just cover your sin. He took away your sin. He didn't just provide for you a band-aid. He didn't just provide for you some wrap that you can put around your womb. And maybe in a year or two years, it will get better. But what happens when you cover your womb with a band-aid or a wrap? There's still a scar. What Christ does is he removes all of your sin. So you are now spotless, without blemish without blemish. Why? Because you are like him. On the cross, Christ's perfect righteousness was imputed to me. And all of my sin, all of my guilt, all of my shame was imputed to him. Christ gives me what is his and I give him what is mine. I hide all of my dirty laundry into his He takes on my rags and he gives me his righteous robe. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That verse means this, saints. When God looked upon the Son on the cross, he saw sinful and wicked Isaiah. He saw sinful and wicked Pastor Antonio and Patrick and Leela and all of you. God on the cross treated his son as if he committed every sin from every person who would ever live. Yet he did not commit one. The father treated his son as if the son lived my life. And those who have faith in Christ the glorious truth of the doctrine of double imputation and substitution is this, that God treats you as if you lived Christ's life. He treats you as if you lived that sinless, perfect, obedient life. God doesn't see you in Adam's saints, but he sees you in Christ. For you have been covered by his blood and the results our forgiveness on the account of Christ. God forgives us for our sins. And saints, this is all an act of divine grace. Friends, all of us have transgressed God's law. All of us deserve God's wrath. But even though we have broken God's law, God in Jesus Christ has forgiven us. Daniel 9, 9 says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Psalms 103, 12, and you have, to, you have to hear this. If you've never heard this verse before, let this penetrate into your hearts and minds. As far as the east is from the west, as far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah 7, 19 in him, or he will again have compassion on us. I love this. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will stomp on our iniquities. He will cast, or you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. This is where people get that sea of forgetfulness. 
He takes your sin and he throws them as far as the east is from the west into the very depths of the sea and remembers them no more. Christ takes on our sins and doesn't simply remove them from us. So when we hear about he takes our sins as far and he removes them as far as the east is from the west and he takes our sins and throws them to the depths of the sea, it doesn't mean that Christ takes our sins and he places them in the depths of the sea and you stand here and your sins are way over there, but your sins are still there. What he does is he wipes away our sins completely. He doesn't just place them in the, in the sea and you can come back and you can visit them. He removes them as if you never sinned in your life. Saints, be of good cheer this morning or this evening. If you've been struggling with sin in your life for some time now, and maybe you think that God, no way, no how, is impossible. God can't forgive me. Maybe you think that God will never forgive you. Please understand this and write this truth on your heart. There is more grace and forgiveness in God than there is sin in you. There is more grace and forgiveness in God than there is sin in you. No sin is big enough for God not to forgive you. No sin is dirty enough. No sin is evil enough for Christ not to throw his blood over your sin. And present you to the Father, holy and blameless and without blemish. 1 John 1.19 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This grace that God gives to us in Christ is a forgiving grace, is it not? So God's grace is a forgiving grace. Now let's look at the last aspect of God's grace, and that is God's grace is free. God's grace is free. Again, in him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and here's where we see God's free grace and rich grace. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Again, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. This means this, saints. This redemption, this forgiveness, this type of grace that you have is in according to the riches of his grace. Think about it this way. If we were to take up an offering and someone in here uh, was a millionaire, and he gives in this offering $20. In that offering, he would be giving out of the riches or out of his riches, okay? <clears throat> because to give $20 is not, it's not something that none of us can't do. We all can give $20. But let's just say that millionaire came and gave an offering and it was $20 million. Then he would be giving according to their riches, not out of their riches. He would be giving according to his riches. Do you see the difference? The millionaire gave an offering that is measured by the wealth that he has. So when he gives $20 million, you can make a one-to-one -one connection, a one-to-one -one ratio because he's a millionaire, 
right? Here Paul is saying this. God didn't give us forgiveness out of his riches. He gave us forgiveness according to his riches. Paul, God has not given us a redemption that has limits, but has given us a redemption that knows no limits. He didn't just lavish upon us a small amount of his grace. As if that millionaire came and only gave $5 in the offering. But he has given to us in Christ the full measure of his grace. If God, and think about it this way. If God merely saved us from our sin until we sinned again, then that would be a redemption that came out of his riches of his grace. If he set us up on the road to heaven and then told us, well, do what you got to do to get there. He would be giving us a redemption that was according or that was out of the riches of his grace. But that's not the grace that God poured out on us. When God redeemed us, he did not do it part way. When God redeemed us, he didn't go halfway with it. Just like we sometimes go halfway with our Christianity. He he didn't go halfway to save us. He gave all that he had. God said, if I'm going to redeem these sinful people, I got to go all in. I got to go all in. He did not set limits on his grace toward us. We set limits on God daily, do we not? When he redeemed us, he did it according to his riches. Friends, that's why I said your sin cannot outgrow God's grace. His grace is rich. We cannot sin beyond God's grace to forgive. You cannot exhaust his grace to forgive. Paul says in Romans 5.20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but hear this, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. God does not allow sin to win. His grace will always prevail. God's grace is not only rich, but it's a free grace. As we learned from the past weeks that God is all say, that he's independent, that God is free in all that he does, that he doesn't depend on things to do things. But he does things out of the good, out of his goodwill and pleasure. He's independent. God didn't lavish the riches of his grace on you because he saw something great in you. We can't demand God's grace. In fact, in order for grace to be grace, it must be free. It can't be demanded. God's grace and favor towards us is not of our own doing, saints but it's strictly out of his goodwill and pleasure. He didn't look down the corridors of time and see that you were going to do something special and something grand and something miraculous for his kingdom. And based off of what you have done, he chooses you. He chooses to send his son for you. He chooses to lavish upon you the riches of his grace. There's nothing that we did to earn this. It's a grace that's not dependent upon good deeds. It's not a grace that depends on merits. It's a grace that is free and independent. It's not a grace that depends on perfect obedience to the law. 
It's not a grace that depends on your church membership or your church attendance or your baptism. It's a grace that's a free grace that can't be earned and cannot be demanded. This humbles us to the dirt, saints, knowing that out of all the people in the world, out of all the people that ever lived, you chose to give me this gift of grace. And the one question that we're all going to ask in heaven is why me? Why me? Why, oh, love to me? Why such love for me? So, saints, in conclusion, what we have learned this evening of God's grace is God's grace is costly. Saints, understand that God has bought you with a price. That he is the one who has brought you out of slavery, out of the bondage of sin, transferring you from the kingdom of darkness and placing you into the kingdom of righteousness and light. He is the one that has done that. He is the one who has brought you into a marvelous freedom. He is the one who has paid the debt that you owed. And if you know anything about debt, then you know that once you get out of debt, you feel like the weight has lifted off your shoulder. Well, saints, you were in a debt. You were in such a debt that there was no possible way in which you will ever be uh, redeemed, or there was never a way in which it can never be paid unless Christ came on our behalf. He is the one that brought us into a marvelous freedom and who has paid the debt that we owed. It cost the Father, His only begotten Son, saints. It cost you nothing. Second, we saw God's grace as a forgiving grace. On the account of Christ, we are forgiven of our sins. All of our sins, past, present, and future, was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And friends, if you've been struggling with sin lately, know that forgiveness is offered to you in Jesus Christ. Don't ever think that your sin is too big, too grand, too evil for God not to forgive you. It's 24-7, 365 offered to you. Never for once, saints, think that because of your sin, God has forsaken you. Because we can't think that. We can't think that God has forsaken us in our sin. We can't think that because we are doing such wrong things, he has left us. Saints, understand this truth, that the only one who understands what it feels like to be forsaken by God is the one that redeemed you by his blood. Nobody in here understands what it means to be forsaken by God other than God's son, Jesus Christ. So before you think you have it bad, look to Christ because he has experienced and went through something that you could never imagine. And lastly, we saw God's grace is free. God's grace is a free grace. And saints, This is what causes us to adore, worship, and humble us to the ground. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for sending his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us out of a slave market of sin. And now has given us his spirit. Glory be to God. Let's pray.